Welcome to Letter from Belfast, brought to you by Chrome Radio. My name's Glenn Patterson. I'm a writer from Belfast. I'm also the director of the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's University. I'm sitting in a little bit of Belfast City Hall that I didn't even know existed, just inside the front door in a very, very nice little quiet area, apart from a few creaking doors and curious tourists walking by. It's very strange being in Belfast City Hall because for years you just couldn't get into this building. This morning I've had coffee in the Bobbin coffee shop, the little linen reference there. And this is actually the site of the White Linen Hall, so when Belfast was Linenopolis. The Linen Hall Library, one of our great institutions, started out inside this building and is now housed just across the street on Donegal Square. It's a very grand building, our city hall. Not as grand as our Stormont building, but at the minute, slightly more used. Yesterday, the 10th of October, was the funeral of a great Belfast writer, great friend, and citizen of this city, Kieran Carson, a wonderful, wonderful poet who also wrote strange prose works, almost uncategorizable, and explorations of this city. Kieran was the first director of the Shimasini Centre, where I now work. Latterly, he had some ill health. He was working there part-time, and uh, the two of us shared an office to be sitting as I've been sitting this week, surrounded by his books, trying to put together a memorial for him, a civic celebration, which we hope to do at the end of November, has been particularly difficult. His funeral yesterday was so appropriate on every level. There was music. He was a traditional music player. He played flute, brilliant flute player, and always prefaced his readings by taking out a little tin whistle that he would have had in his jacket pocket and he would play before he started to read. There was something in the rhythms of his writing that seemed to, if not grow out of the traditional music, it certainly seemed to be in conversation with it. So there was much singing at his funeral. Wonderful singer, Padraigine Nahulan, and her husband, Len Graham. Padraigine was a traditional singer in residence at the Seamus Heaney Centre shows you the kind of ambition we've always had for it as a place that wasn't just about poetry and writing on the page, but all the literary and traditional arts as well. And the crematorium, as we sat, Padraigine started to sing The Parting Glass. And sitting down, we all joined in. I don't think I've ever been at a funeral where I felt the presence of the person we were taking leave of quite so much. Kieran had this great way when he sang, which he did often, of laying his hand on yours and singing directly to you. I've been thinking about it such a lot, that thing of laying a hand on. It's an incredibly intimate thing, but there's some quality of transmission there. That word transmission has been in my thoughts since he died. 
as individuals, how we pass on to whoever's coming behind us, but also the duty we have to pass on that which we know of someone like Kieran. The Seamus Heaney Centre has a great number of terrific young writers, many of whom have had the opportunity to work with Kieran in recent times. PhD students in creative writing and poetry, some master's students. I saw a whole lot of them last night and I just wanted to say to them, remember, remember that experience. That's the experience that will feed into the work that you do, but you also have the duty now to tell. From where I sit in City Hall, I'm looking down Donegal Place, our main shopping street, onto Royal Avenue, just beyond where I can see. I sat one day with Kieran while he talked about an area called Smithfield that he remembered from his childhood and youth. Smithfield was destroyed by an IRA firebomb in 1974. Where it had been, part of it is now covered by a huge shopping centre, Castle Court Shopping Centre. Kieran was sitting, incredibly well-dressed as he always was, outside Castle Court, talking about this Belfast of his childhood and youth. He's written so much about it. He's got a great poem called Smithfield Market. I love that idea of each generation passing on to the next in whatever way, keeping that city alive so that there are no full stops in the story of a city. Earlier this year, I was in conversation with my editor at Head of Zeus, Neil Belton, who had published Fintan O'Toole's book on Brexit. He was talking about Northern Ireland and about how central Northern Ireland was to the whole Brexit debate. Wondering whether there might be a book to be written about this place at this moment. This was also, tragically, very soon after the murder of Lyra McKee in Derry in April. And what seemed probably to the outside world as a sudden reappearance of the IRA or a version of the IRA, but it has always been there. There have been 160 paramilitary murders since the Good Friday Agreement. So there has been a version of the IRA and loyalist paramilitaries have been active right the way through the last 20 years. Arising out of all of that, Neil asked me if I thought there might be a book to be written and indeed if there was a book to be written, might I be the person who would write this book about Northern Ireland at the time of the Brexit negotiations, complications. Of course, the backstop is the thing on which it repeatedly seemed to founder. Certainly Theresa May's deal was foundering on that. I started to write the book, which is called Backstop Land, knowing that this would be the period of most rapid change, that whatever I wrote in June or July would, by the time we got to October, seem so distant, because that's just the way with negotiations. The closer you get to a deadline, the more likelihood there is of something changing quite rapidly. That feeling of being unable to predict still and not knowing with any certainty at all what the outcome is going to be. The unsettling effect of that is part of what that book is about. The word unsettled, I've heard a few people use it. There are two things that are going on here. One, we haven't had a functioning government at Stormont. Our Northern Ireland Assembly, created by the Good Friday Agreement, hasn't sat for getting on for a thousand days. 
So we don't have our local government. And when Parliament was prorogued in Westminster, we didn't have central government either. So we were all at sea. There's such rancor at the minute in local politics. And then there is the rancor in the rest of the United Kingdom. And then the rancor within the discussions and negotiations around Brexit, north and south of this island and east and west of these islands. So Irish-British relations are pretty low at the minute. Some people passing in the corridor there. The DUP on whom the government depended for nearly two years, the 10 DUP MPs, their influence is still strong, but I think diminishing. I always thought that, and wasn't alone in thinking, that at some point, if it came to it, to get a deal, it was possible that Northern Ireland would be, as the DUP might say it, sacrificed to get a Brexit deal done. The electorate here, we were one of only three regions in the United Kingdom that a majority voted to remain. So a very strong remain feeling here. And then polls suggested that a majority of people here would have supported Theresa May's deal and quite liked the idea of a backstop and quite liked the idea of a Northern Ireland that was more closely aligned to the European Union. The DUP, which is the largest single party here and has the largest number of MPs, was a Leave party and also was against the Theresa May deal and anything to do with the backstop. How do you have a party that is still our largest party and yet it's out of step with the electorate on two counts? There's an anomaly here somewhere. People still vote for parties like the DUP, even though they may not agree with all the policies, because in the end, our politics still is about the constitutional question, about whether we are part of the United Kingdom or whether we will eventually be part of a reunited Ireland. People scratch their heads and wonder how the DUP is still as strong as it is. It's because they sell themselves as the party that loves the union more. And for a lot of people, that is the most important political question. I am so impatient with people telling us what a brilliant peace process we have. That it is miraculous that I live in a place that doesn't have a government and hasn't had it for a thousand days. In the 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed and the Assembly first sat, I think it has been suspended for at least seven. This isn't our longest period. We had direct rule for four years after one suspension. This is not a really well-functioning political arrangement. We have had paramilitary violence. Lyra McKee's murder was only the latest, I hope the last. I was here on Good Friday this year in front of the City Hall, the day after Lyra McKee was murdered with a large number of my fellow citizens. And I've been here in front of this city hall so many times in my lifetime and since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. We come out when anybody is murdered. We come out and we protest. We stand together and we say, let this be the last time. I can see the colonnade at the front. I was standing in the lee of one of those pillars. There was a guy standing holding a baby. And he said, maybe this really will be a peacetime baby, my baby. Lyra McKee used to refer to herself and her generation, she was 29, as the ceasefire babies. I think from the beginning, there were mistakes that were made. There were things that were tolerated that shouldn't have been tolerated. 
we haven't arrived at this position of having two parties who are supposed to share power, barely even able to share a room, suddenly. There were steps along the way where wrong decisions were made and too much equivocation. This is what the Good Friday Agreement looks like. This is the artworkings of it. I describe it not as a miracle, but as a kit for a miracle. Just everybody thought they had different instructions about how to assemble it. I would vote for it again. I'd vote for it every single time. I would just hold us all to account much more stringently. The Good Friday Agreement was significantly amended in an agreement at St. Andrews in 2006 that was really a carve-up between Sinn Féin and the DUP. It was after St. Andrews that our institutions, which had been suspended and we'd had direct rule, were reanimated. And at that moment, Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley went into government together as First Minister and Deputy First Minister, which is, to many people, the high point of the peace process and Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement. It was a very short time that Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness were First Minister and Deputy First Minister together. The changes that were made to the Good Friday Agreement at St Andrews, the side deals that were done, bedevil us today. We've had several goes at renegotiating the Stormont House Agreement. All of these revisions of the Good Friday Agreement are things that were left unaddressed by it. But St Andrews is the one that, to my mind, really stitched us up and created something that gives us these two parties, Sinn Féin and the DUP, whose interests were best served by being in government together. Just before the assembly ended in January 2017, the DUP and Sinn Féin released a statement with a photograph of all their ministers standing together, and not just standing together in two blocks, but kind of intermingled, talking about how well everything was going, and pretty much castigating the other political parties, the SDLP, the Ulster Unionists, the Alliance Party, who had, by that stage, gone into opposition, which I thought was brilliant, because you need an opposition. They'd gone into opposition rather than sit in an executive in which they had no power because they felt that the DUP and Sinn Féin had that pretty much stitched up. The Brexit vote has already happened at that stage. There's no doubt that Brexit has added to that climate of uncertainty, that feeling of people being unsettled, of fear as well. Brexit is exacerbating. I don't think there's much that it has created. The new IRA who murdered Lyra McKee were formed in 2012. Nevertheless, it's always been the case that Republican paramilitaries in particular will look at something like this as an opportunity to further their desire for a united Ireland. The IRA, they never needed a mandate. Their mandate is the 1916 Rising, the Declaration of the Republic. It is the first Doyle Aaron in 1919, the election at the end of 1918 that was a landslide victory for Sinn Féin. That's their mandate, they say. There have been more attacks in recent times, and the great fear is that a hard border would create new opportunity for violence. The Brexit debate seems to have allowed people to speak in a way that I don't think they did. And maybe this is true throughout Ireland and across the water in Great Britain as well. There's something very unguarded and perhaps unwise about the way people are speaking. There's a lot of using 
people talking about who we are, who the Irish really are, who the English really are. Many nationalisms, not just English nationalism, many nationalisms seem to have come to the surface again. I always thought the purpose of our Good Friday Agreement was a bringing together. What has happened has been that we've become a little bit more compartmentalized. This line about respecting diversity, which is great, do respect it. But remember that there is a community. We are not many communities, it's one community. That's my preferred use of that word community. I like it in the singular, I worry about it in the plural. Brexit is definitely, the whole debate has destabilized further something, thinking just of Northern Ireland here, that already, just about the way the politics were tending, would have given me cause for concern. In the middle of all of this, the Belfast shipyard, Harland and Wolf, went into administration. The shipyard, at its height, employed 35,000 people. Where the shipyard was is now referred to as the Titanic Quarter. It used to be known as the Queen's Island, a piece of reclaimed land on the east side of the River Ligon. Once a pleasure park, and then the home of our biggest industry, the biggest shipyard in the world at one stage, Harland and Wolf. Each time we redefine that piece of land, it's almost as though we change the nature of the city. The Titanic Quarter, formerly Queen's Island, is now home to the Titanic Visitor Centre. It's also home to a film studio where Game of Thrones was filmed and many other things as well. There are also tech businesses down there, financial services down there. So the new economy of Belfast is taking shape down there. And still in the middle of it are these two enormous cranes, the emblems of Belfast. Big yellow cranes with H and W, Harland and Wolf. The shipyard is employing about 130 people. It went into receivership. No buyer could be found for it. And across the summer, the workers were staging an occupation. My dad used to work there. My dad worked in the shipyard in 1960. He worked in one of the last big liners built there, Canberra. I pass it every day on my way in and out of the city centre. What was so difficult for the workers to understand was that here we were approaching 31st of October when we were going to be leaving the European Union. You might have thought you'd want to keep a shipyard open. There might just be reason why you'd be thankful to have that infrastructure still there. Also, the DUP having such an influence as it seemed over the government surely could intervene in some way. One of the workers told me that in answer to a plea from the workers, one DUP MP had tweeted that they didn't have the government over a barrel, to which the workers said, why not? I'm glad to say a buyer has been found for the shipyard, but there was a moment in the late summer here where it looked very, very bleak indeed for it. And it just seemed to be symptomatic of the malaise. We didn't have a local government, didn't have our regional government, the assembly. We didn't seem to have the interest of the Westminster government. Shipyard in Glasgow was in similar difficulties at the time and the Scottish government was able to intervene. Slightly different circumstances, but nevertheless, they were able to intervene to keep it afloat. We just seemed to be unable to do anything 
that would protect what had been for many years the major industry here. It's never going to be as important an industry again, but it is still hugely, hugely important that we have the ability at least to attract shipbuilding orders or refits or oil rig refurbishment repair, which is what they've been doing. Something curious about the Harland and Wolf cranes, you can't go anywhere in Belfast now without seeing them. There's little models of them. You can buy little planters for outside your front door in the shape of these cranes. I just thought it was so remarkable that we would be trading on the cranes at the same time as letting the industry that they were there to serve die. You have been listening to Letter from Belfast, brought to you by Chrome Radio. If you'd like to hear more from Glenn Patterson, do listen to A Sense of Place in our series on Brexit, The Irish Question. <laughs>